Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. Serving the community for over 75 years, Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, who is studying a new surgical technique that allows surgeons to make repairs to the heart without having to open the chest cavity and while the heart is beating. Info at PinnacleHealth.org. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Sometimes one of the most difficult conversations for parents to have with their teenage or preteen children is about what to expect as the kids get older and face a whole new set of challenges. What is a healthy relationship, sex and pregnancy, social media and cell phones? The Pennsylvania Coalition Against Domestic Violence has created a new mobile app to assist parents in communicating with their kids about some very serious topics. Joining us to discuss the app, and some of these topics as well. Prevention Manager Kristen Herman and Prevention Specialist Nick Silveri-Hiller, both with the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having Thanks us. For having Can us. you move just a little bit there, Nick? There you go. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, so what was the idea behind the new app? Well, the idea for the app was actually born in a Starbucks in Pittsburgh. <laughs> uh, we had a meeting with a funder who's funded our parent engagement efforts for uh, five plus years, I think. And we were trying a program in Pittsburgh that was uh, it aimed to get parents to come in person and sit through a discussion or a class about teen dating violence, relationships, how to talk to your teens. And it didn't go well. Parents are busy and they're really hard to sort of gather all in one place. And uh, my old boss and I were sitting in a Starbucks and we were like, what are we going to tell this funder? What are we going to do? We have no idea. And so we thought, well, where is one place where all parents are and all parents go? And we thought the, the media and um, social media and apps. And that's sort of where the app idea was born. I think that was two years ago. And uh, we finally launched it in June. Mm-hmm. And it is called? It's called Raising Respect. Raising Respect. And by the way, as we we're discussing this, I'll let you know that uh, there is a link on our website, WITF.org, to your website that uh, you know gives directions on how to download uh, the app and, and all that. You know, I have to say, Nick, that the first thing I thought of, you know, Kristen was talking about where do parents go, but first thing I was thought, thinking about is how young people go to you know, their, their cell phones mobile apps use it so much so i mean have, is this something that uh, you think that parents are going to take advantage of as well yeah i think it'd be uh, really useful for parents and uh, their children to use together even uh it is geared towards working with parents and giving them tips uh, to how to talk about these things but uh, i think it has enough information we try to make a lot of put a lot of background information in it um that that can uh, also be useful for their kids to look at. So, Kristen, what are some of the topics? Some of the topics, so we have 10 overall topics, and then within each of the topics, you can sort of get more specific questions. We did surveys and focus groups with Pennsylvania parents to figure out where their concerns were. Um, some of the 10 topics are healthy relationships, so is my child uh, a victim? What would I do in that instance? And then you have other topics, sort of self-care for kids, self-care for parents, that's always an important piece, um, sex and sexuality, and certainly social media and media and those influences on, on your children. Mm -hmm. uh, so why the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Domestic Violence? I mean, uh, some of these topics, yes, you can see, and you were talking about healthy relationships. <laughs> Obviously, that is something that uh, as uh, young people are becoming, uh, and, and this is to, to reach them, kind of before they, be, they start dating and getting involved in, in relationships. But what is your organization uh, dealing with some of these things? I think we decided that we had to take on a broader view than just dating violence. When we look at prevention, when we talk about prevention of domestic violence, we really want to look at 
how our culture and society as a whole really encourages and tolerates these violent behaviors to continue. And so when we're trying to figure out what tips we need to give parents to get to their kids, we figured out that if we're only talking about dating violence, we're only talking about healthy relationships, we're actually doing them a disservice because as most parents understand, any parents of teenagers, it's a very complex age for kids to be going through. And if we just gave them dating tips, one, some parents don't believe that their kids are dating or aren't allowing their children to date. And so they wouldn't use the app. Um, but two, there are so many topics that intersect with dating. So we tried to relate all of the topics back to relationships. So it um, so really lent to our expertise as the Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Um, so for example, when we talk about, there's a topic on drugs, and we really try to relate that back to relationships. How can that be used um, to take advantage? How can that be used to pressure folks? And um, those sorts of those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. You know, and I'm going back a few years, but uh, thinking about the uh, discussions with my own parents, domestic violence was really not a big part of that. It was more sex, <laughs> drugs and alcohol, that kind of thing. Of, of course, there was the advice from my father that you treat whoever you're dating with respect and, uh, you know, that, you know, there, physical violence is not a part of that or anything like that. But that was as far as the discussion went. So today, this is something that parents have to d discuss with their children, Nick? Yeah, I think it's uh, important to just have, uh, to be available to your children about all types of different issues, right, and, and help guide them. Uh, when it comes to uh, healthy relationships and everything else that the app uh, offers. Mm -hmm. um, well, what is a healthy relationship? I mean, we could spend the whole hour discussing that, but uh, I want to branch off a little bit with some of the topics that uh, you're discussing. When, when uh, you know, on this app, and first of all, describe what it is. What would a parent find? And then let's get into what is a healthy relationship. Absolutely. So when you download the app on your iPhone or Android, what you're going to get is um, a screenshot. It kind of looks like a news feed almost on your Facebook. And you have all Real the news. different... I'm sorry? Real news. Real news, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a real news feed, facts. <laughs> um, and so when you scroll through, you can see all the different questions. And you would just pick a question that you wanted the answer to. So, for example, what is a healthy relationship? When you select what a healthy relationship is, um, you would get a, a larger screen on your phone. And it gives you two things. One, we give you background information. So we answer the question for you. And then the other tab are tips and questions. So one of the things that we found from parents when we when we did surveys and focus groups with them is, we wanna talk about it, we know it's an issue, we have no idea what to say or how to say it. So we sort of give you tips, um, sample questions to get you through that. When we explain to parents what a healthy relationship is, we wanna get over some of the preconceived notions and hurdles that, that sometimes folks carry about healthy relationships. So, you know, you had mentioned your dad talking to you about respecting women and, and never laying a hand on anyone, and that is, of course, important. Relationships, especially with teenagers, you know, they've, they've never been in a relationship before, and they have no idea what they're doing. Frankly, as adults, sometimes we have no idea what we're doing. <laughs> yeah. And so we want to make sure that we're not just talking about physical violence, but we're talking about um, controlling behaviors and jealousy. And when do, when do these things really cross the line? And when are they um, kids not knowing what they're doing and kids getting into some really dangerous situations? Mm -hmm. uh, do parents know that? I mean, today's parents, do they know? I mean, these topics as I said in the introduction, can be difficult to begin with. I mean, so it is a real public service to offer some tips and some ideas on how to approach uh, the topics themselves. But I have to admit, as a parent, looking down through that list, I'm like, oh, my God, there's a lot to talk about there. I mean, I, this looks like it could be a, a, a pretty long conversation. Mm -hmm. How do you uh, approach this? I mean, do you do it like a, one at a time or, or just what? Oh, Go I, ahead. I, I, <laughs> I think you can uh, first, you know, talk about it as issues come up. Say, if you're watching a movie and the movie uh, sh de depicts an act of violence, right. or or, right. or um, you can use that as a learning opportunity, right? Or uh, whatever television show the uh, 
the child's interested in, again, using that as a way to start discussing these uh, issues. Mm-hmm. Um, we uh, did some focus groups uh, in preparation for the app. And one of the things that uh, we found uh, that we asked, where do you talk to your children about these types of issues? And one of them, the number one was in the car. Right, mm. um, and so you have a captive audience there, right? Exactly, <laughs> unless they have yeah. earbuds in, you know. yeah. Yeah, um, <laughs> and so I think uh, you, you know, just using those learning opportunities uh, throughout, you know, all of society. So uh, you know, anything in the news, we can look at that as a learning opportunity to start that conversation. Are parents still uncomfortable with many of these topics? You know, when we asked them, Scott, we were sort of surprised with the answer that most of them felt comfortable talking to their kids about some of these topics. Now, when you get into the sex and um, sexual orientation, those sorts of things, we saw lower levels of comfort, but they felt pretty comfortable. The, The interesting thing was when we then asked them, okay, so we laid out characteristics of healthy and unhealthy relationships, and we sort of mixed them up. And we said, you know, tell us which characteristics you think are acceptable and which ones you think are not. And they they did pretty well, um, but it was when we really got out of the physical realm and into sort of the emotional abuse and the the controlling and isolation behaviors, um, a lot of the jealousy pieces, they were less sure or less confident that that was part of an unhealthy relationship. Like in what way? I mean, what what were they uncomfortable with and what kind of advice or what kind of uh, content is there on the app to talk about those emotional topics? I think I think the the discomfort came from not understanding the problem. I mean, if we think about it, so domestic violence is a huge issue. Dating violence is a huge issue, and it's a generational thing. So, if you grow up in a household with domestic violence, you're more likely to be involved in an abusive relationship um, in your future. And so, we're talking about parents having conversations with kids where the parents themselves might not be in healthy relationships. Mm -hmm. And so I think some of the confusion comes from that. As a society, we don't teach people how to be in relationships. Um, We just sort of expect them to go for it and then get upset when they mess up. Um, So what the app really does is it walks parents through really step-by-step. So so to your point earlier when you said it feels really overwhelming, there is so much you have to worry about being a parent of a kid. And when they're teenagers, I think it just gets worse, to be honest, um, because they're they're getting their independence. And so you're still trying to parent them and they're trying to do their own thing. So we try to really break it down and um, talk about some of the questions are phrased as, is this really an issue? Um, Should I be concerned about this? And the background subjects that we give in the app are really quick sentences, little paragraphs. So you're not sitting there reading a novel. You're just getting the little bit of information you need. If you want more, there are resources. Um, And then we just encourage parents to to, to have a go, to to have a conversation with their kids and start. And it's not going to be perfect the first time, and it might be uncomfortable, but the fact that you are initiating that and talking to your teenager really says a lot. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health Spine Institute, offering a complete range of services to diagnose and treat your spine condition. More information is available at pinnaclehealth.org spine. Welcome back to Smart Talk. And during this portion of the program, we're talking about a new app offered by uh, the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Domestic Violence. It uh, has advice, a lot of information for parents in talking with some pretty serious topics uh, to their preteens and teenage children. If you have a question or a comment, maybe a story to tell. Maybe you can tell us a related story about the, I don't know what, I, I hate to say the talk because everyone thinks of the talk as just being about sex, but conversations you've had with your own children and uh, how the kids reacted, uh, what you found challenging. Uh, is This app is something that uh, you would have uh, used if you had the opportunity when your kids were younger, or maybe even you, you could use it now. Any of those things, give us a call, tell us a story, one 800 
questions. We're at 729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You can leave a question or a comment or a story on WITF's Facebook page on Twitter in 144 characters or less. Uh, you could do it at uh, our t- Twitter address is at smarttalkwitf. Again, 1-800-729-7532. Our guest today, Prevention Manager Kristen Herman and Prevention Specialist Nick Silveri-Hiller of the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Domestic Violence. I'm wondering, you said you, you, you just launched this uh, earlier this summer. Uh, if you have heard stories, just like I was kind of asking our audience about, uh, if you've heard stories from parents who have said, I wish this is something that would have been around when my children were of age that we could sit down and have this conversation. Yeah, I I think we've heard parents who are excited to have the information and to have it all in one place. A lot of folks are used to um, going online to look for what they need and then really having to sift through all of the stuff that's on the Internet. And so we've heard feedback that it's nice to have it. It's nice to have it all in one place. Mm -hmm. We have an email says, I don't have a smartphone, but this sounds like a valuable resource. Is there something you can load to a tablet computer or is the same information available in a non-app format? I'm really not social media tech uh, savvy and I'm resisting the smartphone movement because it costs more and is more destructible than a regular phone. Well, good for you for being stronger (laughs) than the rest of us. (laughs) Um, If you have a tablet that has an App Store or a Google Play, you can certainly download it on a tablet as well. The app also has a website. Uh, It's called RaisingRespectApp.org, and you can certainly go on there and get all the same information. And again, we do have a link on our website, WITF.org. If you go uh, to the description of today's Smart Talk program, uh, you can find that link, and there's a lot of information there. Uh, You know, this brings up a point. One of the topics that uh, you do address on the app is uh, social media and uh, and and mobile phones, for example. Um, this is something that has really changed our society, and especially for young people. I mean, I know the stereotype, and we hear the complaints about uh, young people who are constantly looking at their phones, but let's face it, that's how they communicate in a lot of ways today. But there also are challenges raised by that, and, uh, you know, we've heard of cyberbullying, people about cyberbullying, and uh, people who would say things uh, in a text or an email that uh, they, they may not in a face-to-face situation. So tell me a little bit about that. I mean, what kind of topics do you address related to social media? Well, I think you can uh, just approach it kind of the similar way than you would approach any other uh, issue like this, <coughs> except uh, just in a different format. So uh, the same way that we talk about healthy relationships, I think, in just any real context, is the same way that we can talk about um healthy relationships when it comes to online or or through uh, any type of social media. So being respectful and uh, treating folks well, just extending that to whatever social media context there is. I mean, you don't tell, because I know there are a lot of parents who would say, you've got to put down that phone. Can you put down the phone so we can have a conversation? That it becomes almost a discipline thing. I'm sure that's not part of it, but... What kind of advice, other than just, you know, the, the, the general respect, that kind of thing, uh, it, it, do you talk about with social media? Well, I think one of the challenges in social media and really one of the challenges that we're seeing as dating culture evolves with the younger generation is they are forming relationships through technology and using technology. And so some of the advice that we give to parents is really figure out where they are and figure out... Um, the environment of where they are. So if your child or your teenager is using Snapchat, download Snapchat and play with Snapchat. If they're using the app, the messaging app Kick, download it, figure out what it's about. Um, that's really what we want parents to know. You, you know, your kids are on there and for the most part they're they're probably doing the right thing and, and just using it to have fun with their friends. But if you don't have an understanding of really how their world works, if their world is it, it consists of social media pieces, then you're you're doing a disservice to to yourself and the conversations you want to have. See, that is a scary proposition for a lot of us older people. In in that uh, you're right that uh, I mean we're well aware of it that uh, there are many young people who are establishing relationships 
through their cell phone or you know uh, chatting to Snapchat or whatever on on computer on their computers, and you know we've heard the horror stories about uh, predators and uh, you know people that may not portray themselves accurately uh, on online and you know it's not the kind of person you want and that that's a scary proposition for a lot of parents yes the the unknown is is very frightening uh, for parents and I think for some folks and some parents will likely correct me um, they don't they don't know. They have no idea of, of what's out there. And so it's it's predators, which is one thing. You know, I grew up in the 90s, and so that was like chat rooms, predators. Right, and, and that right. was a big thing back then. And, and now there are predators, but also teens who are in established relationships that they know with, with other kids at school. There are... They're allowed to have more contact with each other, more frequent contact. Um, you know, they can sort of track what the other person's doing and and say things or, or speak to their partner in a way that might not be healthy, but other folks don't get a chance to see it and correct it because it happens on the privacy of their cell phone. What about sexting? I mean, is that something that's addressed? Sexting is addressed in the app, yes. Yes. Um, that is one of the biggest concerns that pops up for parents over and over and over again. And so we encourage parents to talk, and in relationships in general, we encourage parents to talk with their girls, um, and not just as victims, but as equal partners in relationships. But we also want to make sure that parents are talking to their boys as well. Talking to boys, that is something that, uh, uh, you know, when we're talking about uh, domestic violence, when we're talking about sexual assault, that uh, many times, and it is getting much more attention today, it's not just telling young women, uh, girls, how to protect yourself or what to look out for. It is telling boys, this is what you don't do. This is how you treat people. And this goes back to uh, the healthy relationship part, right? Yeah, I think engaging men is uh, a really important part of the work to end domestic violence. Um, that's how I um, got involved was uh, while I was at college. There was a specific uh, push to engage more men. Um, but to also look at the issue as a community issue, kind of traditionally it's been limited and talked about only as a women's issue. Um, and so engaging men isn't to necessarily put blame on men or to uh, target men as, you know, potential perpetrators, but really to just widen the um, who we are talking to and who we are engaging in uh, this work. Because, uh, you know, we all, the stats are out there. Uh, one in four women, one in seven boys, uh, men will be uh, experience sexual violence or domestic violence, right? Um, so those are massive numbers. Um, so we, even if... Uh, you know, even if we don't think that we know a survivor, we know a survivor. So this affects all of our lives and kind of engaging men can, uh, I think, amplify that and, and make it a community issue. Kristen, mm -hmm. are, are fathers, are they, when you were talking about issues that they were uncomfortable discussing, are they comfortable in talking to their boys about, uh, about some of these things? You know, we did a focus group um, in the Philadelphia area a year or so ago with just fathers. Um, we tried to do some some research on using technology to engage parents, and there wasn't a whole lot out of out there, and there was not a lot of representation of fathers in the research, which is really unfortunate. Um, so we did a focus group with just fathers, and they were comfortable talking about most of the issues. When we get to the sort of sensitive stuff, again, the sex and sexuality, that sort of thing, maybe they were more comfortable having a conversation with their son as opposed to a daughter, or they were more comfortable having a conversation almost as a surface type of conversation. So not really diving deep into it. They don't really want to talk about the details necessarily as much. Um, but they're they're a little bit closer to getting there than maybe you know the parents of of my generation. But are are fathers more likely to talk to their sons about healthy relationships today than say my generation or even maybe even your your generation? I don't know if they're more likely to be honest. You know, I think that the the amount of conversations that fathers are having with their sons are the same. We're hoping that the the topics are leaning more towards healthy relationships. Um, and certainly, I don't think that fathers having conversations with other children, so daughters, um, really has increased a whole lot. All right, let's take a phone call from Heather in Mechanicsburg. Heather, you're on the air. 
Hi, um, I was a single parent of three children. I have two in their early 20s and a 17-year-old. And the one thing that I offer to parents is stop making it so complicated. All you got to do is open your mouth and be honest and talk to your kids. I got pregnant in high school, and I wanted to make sure that that never happened with my children. So I talked to them from the time they were little, two, three, four years old, about appropriate and inappropriate behavior, um, about having, um, making the right choices. And in all the work I've ever done, my kids turned out pretty great, but they have screwed up. And there have been times where they've made the wrong choices. But parents need to remember that sometimes kids are stupid and they make stupid choices. And that has nothing to do with you being as a parent as long as you did the best you possibly could. Heather, thank you very much for your call. What do you think about uh, what Heather had to say? I think there was a lot of good information in there. Uh, You know, we we developed the app to, to really take all these complicated topics and and really bring them down to a, a something that feels tangible and easy to discuss. And she's right, just talk to your kids. That's really the the main goal of the app and really that's what you need to do is just have a conversation about anything. Every conversation you have doesn't have to be about a serious topic, but what you're doing when you talk to your kids is building your relationship with them and that's going to help you down the line when you have to get into those tough discussions. You know, I'm wondering and I don't know whether you could answer this or not, but Heather said she was a single parent. I wonder whether someone uh, who had the experience of someone like a Heather is more likely to talk to their kids because they've lived through some of these experiences. I mean, often we hear that uh, the healthiest family situation is where there was a mother and a father, you know, and that's the happiest home and all that. Well, there are a lot of single parents who would uh, disagree with that. We, let's face it, we have a lot of single parent homes in the in this country. Uh, I'm I'm wondering, and again, I don't know whether you can answer this or not, but whether someone who has had experiences, maybe it is both father and mother, are more likely to talk to their kids than say someone who who has not lived through that. You know, I'm not sure. Um, I think that that parents sometimes feel like they have to embody the perfect parent. And so when they grew yeah. up, you talk about all the good things you did and all the all the things you accomplished. And the reality is the kids see right, they see right through that. <laughs> uh, they know that we're not perfect and and so the app is sort of to help them if if they don't get the information from you, if, if your kids aren't getting the information from you, they're going to get it from somewhere else. Um, and it might not be the best information out there. So I absolutely agree with the caller who says, just talk to them. And you know what? Share with them where you messed up and what you learned from that. That's, that's what we want them to do is to learn from our mistakes so that they don't have to go through that themselves. You know, this list on the app, and there there are some pretty serious topics that we've discussed, but uh, one I wanted to address, uh, drugs and alcohol is part of this. And, you know, f- for the last 50 years, parents have been talking to their, their children about, uh, you know, you got to stay away from drugs. You can't, uh, you, you can't drink until you're of age and you have to be responsible. The reality is is that uh, right now we are living through an epidemic of heroin use, uh, prescription drugs, and it involves a lot of young people, not just teenagers, but uh, even young adults. Uh, so that conversation would seem to take on even more urgency than even in the past. Yeah. You know, I want to be clear, the, the the drug and alcohol conversation in the app is not the end-all, be-all of drug and alcohol conversations to have with your teens. We really try to relate it back to how the use of drugs and alcohol can affect relationships and your child's safety. But I definitely agree with you, Scott, that we're, we're, we're in a new era uh, of drug abuse, and, and certainly the opioid epidemic is harming a lot of people in our community um, and our kids as well. And it just goes back to... The, the overall purpose of the app, which is to take all of this information that parents are worrying about constantly and really try to put it into one place for them. Mm-hmm. Kristen Herman and uh, Nick uh, Silveri Hillary, the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Domestic Violence, thank you very much for being with us today. Great. Thanks for thank having you. us. And uh, I will mention again that there is a link on our website, WITF.org, uh, to uh, the, the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Domestic Violence website where you can learn more about the app, all the issues that are covered, how to 
download uh, and, you know, something that's highly encouraged. Uh, we deal with a lot of issues in uh, today's world, and uh, this is just a, a little helper for, for parents and uh, teenagers and uh, preteens as well. Horse, Little Chief, and Little Plume are returning to Wyoming. The three boys, who were between 9 and 14 years old, died while students at the Carlisle Indian Industrial School, where they were known as Horace Washington, Dickens Knorr, and Hayes Vanderbilt Friday. They died over 100 years ago. All three boys were born as part of the Northern Arapaho Nation. Their bodies were disinterred yesterday from graves on the grounds of what is now the U.S. Army War College and will be reinterred in their ancestral homes in Wyoming. To talk about this today, joining us is Art Smith, project leader with the U.S. Army uh, National Military Cemeteries, Susan Rose, author of Carlisle Indian Industrial School, Indigenous uh, in, uh, Histories, Memories, and Reclamation, Reclamations, and the Charles A. Dana Professor of Sociology and Director of Community Studies Center, and Jim Gorenkser is co-director of the Carlisle Indian School Digital Resource Center. Welcome, everyone, to the program. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Art Smith, let me start with you. Uh, provide a little bit of background here and how the Army got involved, and uh, this is just the start of uh, maybe uh, some of the graves, some of the bodies being disinterred and reburied in, on their ancestral homes. Tell us a little bit about it. First of all, I'd like to say... Uh uh, thanks for having me on the program this morning. I uh, really appreciate that. You're welcome. Uh, on behalf of, I, I w would like to start by saying uh, the Army is grateful uh, to have the opportunity to help the Northern Arapaho tribe uh, find, uh, I'm sorry, the families find closure uh, by our efforts to uh, reunite them uh, with their ancestors that are buried here at Carlisle Cemetery. Well, how did it, uh, this all come to be? Well, this started uh, approximately January of 2016, where the Army, uh, the Army National Military Cemeteries Program, received a request from the Northern Arapaho Tribe to disinter, disinter uh, three children that are buried here uh, and return them and reunite them uh, with their ancestors back in Fremont County in Wyoming. We've been in consultation, we being the Army, uh, with the Northern Arapaho since that uh, initial time, and we've been uh, out in doing in-person uh, meetings with them. Uh, we've also have regular tele teleconference calls with them uh, to coordinate and uh, arrange the the disinterments here at Carlisle. Uh, and I want to mention that uh, throughout this process, uh, we really appreciate the uh, professionalism. Uh, displayed by the Northern Arapaho, uh, and they have also expressed to us uh, their gratitude to the Army uh, for the Army's efforts uh, in trying to reunite them, uh, their children with their loved ones. And so uh, that's how we've been working with, with the tribe, and I want to say that uh, this is a very emotional uh, time for the, for the Northern Arapaho, uh, as with, it would be with anybody uh, in this kind of situation where you're uh, disinterring loved ones and, and reinterring them uh, somewhere else. And we understand that. And the Army and everybody on, the, on our team that's involved uh, understands that. And we are treating uh, the families with the utmost dignity and respect uh, throughout this process. Now, how were these three... Uh, boys, Horse, Little Chief, and Little Plume, how were they uh, selected? Are they the, the only three Northern Arapaho? Yes, these three are the only Northern Arapaho here at the cemetery, and the reason that uh, we're here uh, disinterring those particular three children is because uh, the Northern Arapaho submitted an actual request uh, for the disinterment. There's a, uh, a formal process where individuals or groups uh, in this case, the Northern Arapaho uh, have to submit documentation uh, that is then uh, considered by the Army, and then a decision made uh, to approve or disapprove 
that uh, uh, disinterment request. Mm. Now, when did this, you mentioned that uh, this kind of started in January 2016, but it's been well over 100 years since these these three boys died. Uh, I mean, has this something, is this something that has been addressed over the years that, uh, you know, tribes have said, we want to bring members of our tribes home to have them uh, buried on their ancestral grounds? I guess my, my big question is, what's changed in the last year or so? I would say uh, the Army uh, received official formal requests to, uh, for the disinterments. So I believe that may be what's changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, up until this time, the Army had never received uh, formal requests for the, for the disinterments. Now, is this an ongoing thing? I mean, is, are, are these three the, the first of many or more to, to come, disinterments and then reinterments? There are no disinterments scheduled other than the ones we're doing right now at this time. However, this could be uh, the first of several disinterments over the next few years. Uh, the Army uh, is in the process of contacting all the Native American tribes that may have members, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, tribal members that, uh, or ancestors that were interred here uh, when the school was here between 1879 and 1918. We have not received any official formal requests at this time. From, the, from any other tribe. But, you know, I, I, I tend to agree with you that uh, this probably, there probably are other tribes out there that uh, are watching this, and uh, if everything goes as smoothly as you describe, that you probably will be getting other requests as well. Wouldn't you say so? Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Susan Rose, uh, we've talked about this topic on the on this program before when uh, this was first brought up and in 2016. Uh, you know, I, I think it's always Carlisle Indian Industrial School is a big part of central Pennsylvania's history, especially in Carlisle and, and in Cumberland County. Uh, and I always detect that there is a lot of fascination with this. Of course, a big part of this is that there were so many people, not just in this area, but throughout the country who knew about the school because of Jim Thorpe and the the attention that that brought. Uh, so, first of all, let me just talk about that. Uh, talk about that attention, if you would, uh, that the, the school gets and the kind of questions that people ask about the school. Sure. Uh, and I would say that actually uh, the school is well-known, particularly throughout Indian country, In terms of the local community, some are certainly aware of it, and I think that awareness has grown over the last five years. But uh, there's also a lot of silence around the school. So in many cases, a lot of the uh, local folks in the local area actually don't know very much about it. Um, I think it's particularly the descendants of many of those children, over 10,000 children who came between 1879 and 1918, who are now... rediscovering and reclaiming that history. So many of those stories may have been silenced of some of those students who went back to their home communities. Um, and as Dovey Thomason, who's a wonderful Lakota Apache storyteller who lives in Harrisburg, says uh, there are many stories that need to be tell- told, uh, some stories that can't be told. And so the awareness of the school has actually fluctuated, I would say, historically. Um, but certainly, it's a part of all of our history. It's certainly a very painful part of uh, American Indian history and American Indian educational history, and also settler colonialist history. So I think, particularly with the new social history, um, and looking at the, the various ways in which we've educated different populations, that this has really come to the forefront, um, and certainly also points both to, to the historical past, but also to the ways in which we may be educating children today. When you say that uh, some of the stories have been silenced, why? Many of the children uh, were really quite traumatized at the school. So Henry Richard Pratt, uh, who was the founder of the school, in some ways certainly had good intentions. I mean, he um, knew that it was very costly in terms of human lives and also economically for the Indian Wars to continue, for the Army to continue to enact violence against American Indians. And so his response was to start a school where he would bring children from far away from their homes, sever their connections with their communities and their families, bring them far east to Carlisle, 
so that they could be swallowed up. He was a Baptist, in many ways used that metaphor of thoroughly soaking the children in the Euro-American dominant culture to make them uh, as civilized as white men. And he actually did think that Indians could be the equals of Euro-Americans if they were trained up to be so. Um, but the trauma of that history, where they were not allowed to speak their language, they were um, put in military uniforms, and their familiar surroundings, right, and their traditions and their culture and their beliefs, um, it was an attempt to really eradicate all of those and eradicate their Indianness. So when many of them went back to their homes, they couldn't speak their language anymore. There was a lot of dysfunction also in terms of parenting because their relationships with parents had been severed. And so um, as in in wartime, right, uh, in terms of a lot of uh, veterans who come back where they may not talk about their experiences because they're too painful, that was the case also for many of the students who were at Carlisle. Just a quick question, because I'm sure there are, uh, you know, uh, many out there who are wondering, is it American Indian or is it Native American? I, I hear both. Right, and I'll use both, and um, I would always, in terms of talking with someone, ask which they preferred. So Native American sort of came into the language um, a number of years ago. Now many um, people that I talk with actually prefer American Indian or indigenous. But it really depends. Um, It's sort of like, do you prefer black, African American? Um, So always in talking with people, I would ask what, what term they prefer. But you'll see that in the book, too. We'll, we'll use those interchangeably. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jim Karinkser, uh you uh, are a co-director of the Carlisle Indian School Digital Resource Center. And, uh, you know, I've, I've seen some of these uh, photographs that have been taken over the years. Just wonderful history. I'm, I'm curious, though, do you have photographs of these three boys that, uh, you know, whose bodies were disinterred and are going to be reburied? Uh, there's just one photograph so far that we've identified that the boys appear in. There was a photograph taken uh, when the northern Arapaho students arrived, um, and I believe there were two Shoshone students with them at the same time. So there's 13 northern Arapaho and two Shoshone students pictured in a photograph. And I believe Yifna Soldier Wolf has been able to... Um, identify which uh, of the students pictured are the three boys now, uh, from other other photographs that they have access to. Are they identified with their Arapaho names, or are they identified with their Anglo names? So the photograph that um, we have, there was a, a, a photography studio in Carlisle, uh, a man named John Choate, and he was uh, the person who basically contracted with the Indian school in the 1870s, uh, 1880s, 1890s, to take photos of students as they arrived and then taking photos of them months or, or years later to show the change. Um, and typically, um, he would only identify those photos with either their anglicized name or sometimes with large group shots, not even including the names at all. Mm. So Art Smith, I know you have to leave us here in uh, just a few minutes. So what does the future look like? What are you looking for? I mean, we're, we're halfway through this process. Uh, I assume that the bodies are being transported as we speak and that uh, uh, they will be reinterred in, in Wyoming. Uh, what are you looking for in the next few days? Thank you. We're going to still be uh, in the process of doing the disinterments for the next few days. Uh, and part of that process is for uh, any remains that are, that are found to be uh, analyzed on the site by a forensic anthropologist. Yeah, you're, uh, not using any, you're not using any machines to do this, I mean, like backhoes or anything like that. This is all being done by hand, correct? That is correct. Uh, we're doing this uh, all by hand. Uh, we are doing this process with the utmost dignity and respect uh, for the tribe. Um, we we honor their privacy, and this is, a, again, a very emotional time for the Northern Arapaho, and so we're, do, we're doing everything in our power to accommodate uh, their requirements for this process, 
and also to, uh, as we do our uh, work for the disinterments, again, to do that with the utmost dignity and respect uh, as we try and, and reunite uh, these children uh, with, with their ancestors back in Wyoming. Just a quick question. I mean, I don't want to make this a spectacle or anything by asking this question, but because this is something that would interest uh, a, a lot of people, can the public actually view this or is, you know, with that respect that comes along with it, is it uh, just very private? It's, it is very private, and we've part of our uh, coordination with the Northern Arapaho, uh, uh, we're being completely transparent with the, with the tribe. Uh, and respecting their privacy and their wishes, uh, but, but they are part of this process. Um, they are uh, here uh, uh, observing. Uh, we've invited them to be a part of the process and to observe uh, everything that we're doing, full transparency. And of course, they have they have expressed their gratitude uh, to the Army for for this, and have really expressed uh, their appreciation to the Army. Uh, and all the efforts that the Army's doing to, uh, with dignity and respect, reunite uh, these children with their families. Art Smith is project leader with U.S. Army National Military Cemeteries. Mr. Smith, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you very much. Thank you. If you have a question or a comment, this is a fascinating topic. We have a few minutes left. 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Our guest uh, staying with us for the remainder of the program, Susan Rose, author of Carlisle Indian Industrial School. And uh, she also is the Charles A. Dana Professor of Sociology and Director of Community Studies Center at Dickinson College. And Jim Garenkser is co-director of the Carlisle Indian School Digital Resource Center at Dickinson College, 1-800-729-7532. Again, we only have a few minutes left, so if you have a question or a comment, uh, give us a call here in the next few minutes. Uh, I, Jim, I wanted to get back to you. We were talking about the digital collection. Uh, describe that, if you will. I mean, how many photographs you have, where it's housed, how uh, you know the, the public can access some of these photographs. Uh, so the collection itself uh, has been uh, built up over the past uh, for years, uh, we've been sending teams of uh, researchers, undergraduate students from Dickinson College uh, and other interns to the National Archives in Washington, D.C., where the bulk of the uh, original records from the school are located. Uh, so they have been digitizing literally hundreds of thousands of pages of documentation uh, and photographs and then we've been putting them online after doing additional processing and, and uh, cataloging of that information. Where online? So, uh, it is at carlisleindian.dickinson.edu. Yeah, and, and I, I made a mistake by saying uh, photographs. It's m much more than just photographs. Uh, a lot of documents as well. Yes, in fact, um, there's a lot more in terms of paper documents than photographs right now. Um, there are several hundred photographs right now, um, but we're also developing partnerships. We've been working very closely with the Cumberland County Historical Society since the project began. Uh, they're located just a few blocks down the road from uh, Dickinson College, and they have large collections and a lot of expertise uh, from their own research and in helping families research uh, their ancestors over the years. Um, and we've had conversations with other archives and, and historical societies uh, regarding collections that they have. So over time, we're hoping to, to build in even more resources to help uh, descendants connect with information about their ancestors, as well as to support uh, people who may be doing research on the Carlisle Indian School and, and the huge impact that it had uh, on the uh, Native American community. Let's take a phone call from Daphne in Camp Hill. Daphne, you're on the air. Good morning. Um, uh, there were also children from Alaska buried there who were Orthodox Christians because the Russians had been in Alaska 200 years ago uh, to bring Orthodoxy. So these children were buried there, and um, I think they died of, died of tuberculosis. So Father Alexei, something from Alaska, he was doing the research, and he told us about it. So our church is Orthodox Christian, so we have been going there at Easter time. At least one time I was with them, and bringing the resurrection hymns and doing memorial services for those children. Mm. 
Hey, Daphne, thank you very much for the information. And, you know, I know over the years, uh, Susan, when there is interest and when there has been interest uh, in this, and, you know, the Army did a fabulous job. I mean, the the tombstones uh, along the road there, for the most part, they are military tombstones like you would see in a military cemetery. Um, But... You know, I'm sure that there are other people like Daphne, other churches who have come to honor those uh, those American Indians who are interred there. That's right. Mm-hmm. And it is uh, open to the public. It's closed right now for the disinterments. Um, but one can uh, get a pass to go through the Army, through the visitor center, um, and actually visit the cemetery. So, you know, both for Native and non-Native people, it's uh, very sacred space, um, and the, the cemetery is, is very well kept. The Seneca just recently um, removed, placed the tombstones, taking the cross off of the tombstones. Um, others have brought little horses, um, so you can see flowers that have been left. Um, so uh, particularly in the last few years, many people have visited. Hmm. Uh, we only have a minute or so left. I want to thank both of you uh, for, for being with us today. So, Susan, does this bring more interest? And I'll kind of ask the same question that I ask Art Smith. Uh, this is the first, these th- first three, uh, Horse, Little Chief, and Little Plume, that are being disinterred and then buried in, in, in Wyoming, northern Arapaho uh, uh, area. Uh, is, is, do you think this is the first of many? I'm not sure it's the first of many. It, it may be, and that's really up to the nations themselves and also the families. Uh, the Rosebud Sioux has expressed interest, um, and I think there may be some controversy there of those who want to bring the children home and those who feel as though they should be uh, left there. Um, so uh, there have actually been many requests of the Army um, dating, you know, 100 years back. We have documentation of, of the request that the Army send children back um, who are still buried in the cemetery. Um, actually, I would say the Northern Arapaho, it's been a long process of asking. And so I think some of the willingness of the Army um, to do the right thing um, also comes with a change in leadership um, and a greater awareness of the kinds of trauma um, that is the legacy of the Carlisle Indian School that was you know, the model for off-reservation boarding schools throughout the country, and many schools also in Canada. Um, so I think it's hard to say how many will choose. Um, the Lipan Apache came in 2009 and did blessing ceremonies at um, the cemetery for Jack Martha. It's actually misspelled. He was Jack uh, Mather from the Lipan Apache tribe. So some have chosen to do blessing ceremonies there to send the children home uh, rather than in disinterring. So I think that's going to be up to the tribes themselves and the family. Susan Rose and Jim Gerenkser from Dickinson College, thank you very much for being with us today. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Coming up on tomorrow's program, we talk about eating disorders. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support for this program comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a valuable and trusted resource for the communities we serve. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, committed to reducing hospital-acquired infections and readmission rates. More information on Pinnacle Health's achievements in patient safety can be found at pinnaclehealth.org quality.